Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. My name is Rodney, and I'm a church planting resident here at TCC, which what that means for me is I spent 20 years learning how to do ministry wrong and found Matt Rogers, who's one of the smartest guys I know, and decided I need to spend a lot of time around him so I could then go do it right. But it's a real privilege just to get to be here and to teach at TCC this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we're going to focus and look a little bit this morning about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And on the outset, I want you to know something. I think marriage is good. It's real good. Let's read together. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can only reach in front of you and get one of the Pew Bibles and look on page 845 with us at Mark chapter 10. I'm going to start reading at verse 1 down to verse 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful? For a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, because through your word we know you. Through it you show us ourselves. You show us our need for your son Jesus. And you show us the help that we need and the grace that we need to live. And so, Father, today I just want to ask that you give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. And that we would be very teachable before you today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to put out before you this morning three incredibly vivid memories that I have about marriage. The first occurred when I was in eighth grade, and I come home on a regular Sunday night after going to church, going to worship, youth group, come home, dad's got leftovers out on the stove, get some food, sit down at the table, start eating. Suddenly I'm aware of the fact that I haven't seen my mom since I've gotten home from church that night. So I say to my dad, well, where's mom? My dad comes over to the table, he sits down, and he looks at me and says, son, your mom's gone, and she's not coming back. 
And so much of what was said in those few words determined so much of what I thought about myself. I remember thinking, especially that first Christmas, man, if I ever get married, I, I certainly don't want to get a divorce. This is terrible. And yet at the same time, I grew up incredibly afraid of commitment and relationships because I figured if you give a woman enough time, she'll kick you in the gut. The second picture I have in my mind, fast forward some years, summer of 1993, I'd just gotten reintroduced and reacquainted with this young lady named Kathy who I, I was thinking, I think I like her a lot, but you know, marriage is a big decision and how do you really know that you found the one? You thought that, some of you sitting here. How do I know this one is the one? And thank God for a a godly mentor named Bill Holt who said to me, Rodney, don't marry the woman you can live with. Marry the woman you can't live without. And so for 20 years, that's what I've been doing. I still don't want to live without Kathy. Thank God for Bill Holt giving a good piece of advice. The third picture is one that came innocently enough, and it happened right before I got married, just a few months before I was going to uh, join up with Kathy for a lifetime of adventure and I was a youth pastor over in Greer at a church and was planning a, a paintball event with one of my kids because that's what youth pastors do of course uh, besides teaching the Bible you go paintballing and so I'm sitting at this young man's house Dennis Wells and we are planning a paintball outing for the guys in our youth group and his mom Loretta Wells one of the sweetest women I've ever met comes up to us and says, hey guys, would y'all like some snacks? And I'm thinking, well, snacks, meeting, that's a win. So yes, we want some of those snacks. And she goes into the kitchen and begins to prepare some things. And she, because the kitchen was open, I could see across the bar and the table and the kitchen area, she heads to us with that tray filled with snacks. And then all of a sudden behind me, the door, the side door of the house opens up and Loretta stops her trajectory toward me and Dennis with the snacks, goes to the bar, sits down the tray, and goes over to the side door and greets her husband Wayne, who at the time they had been married for over 30 years, and greeted him with the sweetest kiss and hug. And I remember thinking, man, that's the kind of marriage I want. I want that when I come in the door that my wife stops doing what she's doing so she can get over to where I am and greet me the way that I just saw. It was an amazing thing. I didn't know you could have that kind of marriage after being married for 30 years. My example was that marriage is broken. It can't be that good. I constantly want to fight to be the kind of husband Wayne Wells was. And I'm constantly aware of the fact that it's a constant battle, even this week. I went on a picnic with our company, and my boss has a new girlfriend. It's amazing. And if any of you know my boss, it's good. I promise you, it's a good thing. And he was just sweet on this gal. I mean, but to show you how I know that I have to constantly fight... We get home, and I tell Kathy, wasn't that sweet, watching Russell and Amber? He's just holding her hand. He put his arm around. And she looked at me and said, 
Yeah, he was real sweet toward her, wasn't he? I got it, baby. I got it. I got it. This morning in the Gospel of Mark, we're presented with a conversation that becomes a conversation about something else than, other than the Pharisees intended. They come asking a question, and it happens at a very interesting location, Mark tells us, beyond the Jordan as Jesus is making his trek to Jerusalem where ultimately he will die on the cross. Jesus presents to us by his life this custom of teaching and Mark is really showing us as followers of Jesus what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus. And even in this very first verse that sets the environment, an important truth is set forth for us. And it's this, disciples listen to Jesus. A crowd of people have gathered. We don't know the intent of all of the people that are there that day. But we know that the disciples are there, and those who are very concerned about what Jesus has to say, they want to hear what he has to say. And if anything marks us as a Jesus follower, it needs to be a constant prayer and a constant position of humility that, God, before you, I never want to get to the point where I think that I've arrived and I know everything there is to know. I constantly want to be before you teachable, and I want to come willing to learn. My good friend Toby, one of our elders, sets such a, a good example for this every time he gets before us and teaches. And often he will lead us to pray a prayer that goes something like this. Lord, if you'll speak to me today, I'll obey. If anything should mark us as disciples, it's the willingness that Jesus, if that's what you want, if that's what you teach, then we want to obey that. Those are the things that we need to do. And I want to set from the very outset, when we talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage, that there are a lot of emotions that can come. That's what makes this topic hard. The teaching itself is quite clear. There's not a lot of confusion about it. But what makes it hard is, well, our lives. And the reality that there are things that happen that, well, quite frankly, we didn't plan for that. When you have a dream of being in the World Series in the seventh game, you dream of hitting it over the left field fence. You don't dream of striking out. And yet things happen in our life where we strike out. And so we have to keep a constant reality that this is my life, yet, Lord, I want to be teachable to what you have to say. And let me say to you as we think deeply about marriage and divorce this morning, it reveals to us how constantly we need the gospel. That we need to understand that God deals with us through his son Jesus, that our sin is forgiven, and that we can walk in his grace no matter our sin. That because of the gospel, it's not about what I do to somehow earn God's favor, but it's what I receive by mercy through what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection. I mean, let's face it, if you're a husband today and you start hearing about marriage, you start thinking, man, there's a lot of areas I'm not doing so well. Maybe as a wife, you think, gosh, this is something I need to do. Maybe today you're here and you've been divorced and you are remarried. And maybe it feels a little bit like the spotlight is shining right on you today. 
Let the spotlight of God's grace shine on you this morning as we hear this teaching. Now, as the passage moves along, we find out that there are Pharisees who show up as Jesus is teaching the crowd and coming to do what they do. They are detractors, and I want to tell you that detractors test Jesus. Right here in this place where Jesus is teaching is very significant in the fact that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been teaching before him, and the political leader of that day was a man named Herod. And he was married to a woman named Herodias. And she had previously been married to Herod's brother, a man named Philip, and she had divorced Philip in order to marry Herod. That had cost, ultimately, John the Baptist's head. Herodias was angry, and when she was presented the opportunity, John the Baptist was killed. So it seems that what the Pharisees come doing when they offer this question to Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That what they're really trying to do is to get Jesus to say something that will be thought of as treason to Herod, so that Herod can take care of Jesus for them. You go back to Mark chapter 3, and those who followed the political leaders and the Pharisees had set out early in Jesus' ministry that they wanted to destroy him. Does that wash over you the way it should? That there were people that wanted to destroy Jesus and his work? There were people that wanted him off the scene. And so what can seem like a very, well, not much of a question at all about divorce is actually filled with great political intrigue and is a very dangerous situation for Jesus. Yet what Jesus does is turn this situation against the detractors to teach them the real truth of things. So he says to them, what does Moses say? And Jesus, listening for their answers, here's the Pharisees, they quote Deuteronomy 24.1, which was part of the law. And in that verse it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. This is what they quote to Jesus. This is what Moses allowed a man to do. If something happens between that marriage relationship and there's an indecency, if you will, he can divorce her. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a culture of marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the sense that people looked for reasons to divorce. And there were two dominant ways of thinking about divorce in Jewish life during the days of Jesus. There was one rabbi who basically taught that the only sense of indecency that a woman, that a man could divorce his wife for was in the case of adultery. That was the indecency. And if your wife committed adultery against you, then you could freely divorce her and send her away and remarry someone else. There was the assumption that you would marry someone else. Also during Jesus' day, there was also an idea that you could basically divorce your wife for any reason. In fact, there was one rabbi, a man named Hillel, that had taught that if you wanted to get a divorce, and if your wife one night burned your supper, well, that's indecent. 
so you can divorce her. If you're walking down the street, you find a better-looking woman, you divorce your wife, and you can go and remarry that wife. Indecency was anything, and it was wide open. One of the things that I really believe that as the church we need to recapture is our prophetic voice about marriage in our day. In my lifetime, we've gone from a sense that the church looked at divorce as almost an unpardonable sin. I can remember the real distinct discomfort I felt talking to people in my church when I was an eighth grader about my parents. I wanted to talk to someone. I can remember bringing it up in a Sunday school class and talking to some people about what was going on, and I didn't understand things. And what I remember about it was, is everyone got uncomfortably silent. And I remember the message to me was, this is terrible. And we shouldn't speak about it. Let's just pretend this is not going on. I have a good friend who, as a young boy, a 10-year-old growing up in Alabama, tells the story that when his parents were divorced when he was 10 years old, had a man in the church say to him, you know, you really shouldn't be coming to church anymore because you've embarrassed our church. But the pendulum has swung way far. Almost to the point where marriage has become way too throwaway in our culture. Not just the culture at large, but even in the church there can be a sense of that. I'm not coming to quote you any statistics this morning, but I can remember very distinctly men and women I've sat with who were coming to the end of what they hoped with their marriages and what they wanted from me as a pastor was just to sign off on the divorce. In fact, they would talk about it like this, I'm not happy with this person I've been with for X number of years, and I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy, right? They're already thinking ahead to the person that they're going to marry that's going to make them happy, that's going to take care of all the problems they've lived through for the last 25 plus years with this loser, and that this person's going to be a winner, and everything's going to be good. And they haven't even gotten divorced yet. They're already thinking ahead to the next marriage. Let me just say to us that are still married, don't be too quick to judge people that are in that situation. Don't use the truth like a blunt object. Just because you have it together in one area, we probably wouldn't have to look long to find another area that's a struggle for you. It seems to me that we need to embrace the idea of the permanence of marriage because what the Pharisees were about were looking for a way out. Because suddenly Jesus is going to do something. And it leads us to our next point, that disciples embrace Jesus' teaching of marriage. Jesus reminds them, well, yes, Moses said that in Deuteronomy 24 because he understood that we live in a fallen world and, it, and we live in sin. It's kind of like when you get gas at the gas station 
and you see that little sticker of the highway patrolman holding up your license that basically says, if you drive off and don't pay for your gas, we're coming for you and we're going to get your license. The reason there are laws like that is because sin is a reality. The ideal is not, hey, drive off and don't pay for your gas. The ideal situation is you pay for your gas. And that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to point their attention to God's intention for marriage. And he goes back to Genesis and he says to them some very important things. He says that because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And I want you to see there in verse 5, as Jesus turns the tables to talk about marriage, he doesn't say because of their hardness of heart. He says because of your hardness of heart. You that are standing in front of me right now. Because of your hardness of heart. Because sin is so powerful and prevalent and so destructive, there has to be ways to manage it, if you will. The, Mo the Pharisees understand Moses' writing in Genesis, yet their go-to was Deuteronomy. Interesting. Jesus says to them, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This teaching has very much the sense of like the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you've heard it said that this is adultery, actually having a relationship with a woman. But I say to you, if in your heart you've already lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery. Jesus is saying, hey, you've, you've heard it said that you can write your wife a certificate of divorce, but I say to you, get married and stay married. Become one flesh. And these are all powerful ideas. And I think best illustrated by a movie that I saw a couple of summers before I got married. It was a movie called Backdraft. Maybe some of you have seen that. But it's a movie about firemen got Kirk Russell. It's a great movie. And there's this very powerful scene where Kirk Russell is in a dangerous situation. And one of the firemen is getting ready to fall and plunge down into this fiery pit. And they look at him and they say, you go, we go. We would die before we let go of you. I can't think of any other way to pronounce to you that's what Jesus is saying is God's good gift and intention for marriage. That when you are joined together with a man and a woman and they come together, it becomes a completed relationship, a coupled one. And the attitude is that of, wherever you go, I'm going. And if you go down, I'm going down. I am not going to let go. And this is the reality that we live in a world filled with sin. And there are days where we're thinking, Lord, help me. What have I gotten myself into? 
I mean, before you know it, you thought this was the person of your dreams. The next thing you know, you're standing on your very first grocery shopping trip, and this person you've committed to love all of your life tells you they don't like Hamburger Helper. What are you supposed to do with that? Lord, save me! Jesus is pointing the Pharisees to the fact that in creation, this is God's intention. Now, I want you to get this because this is very important. Jesus is emphasizing some very central things about marriage. That marriage is a part of God's good creation. Marriage is a part of God's good creation. Before God creates any other institutions, even before the church, marriage is created. It is a part of the creation mandate. The participants of God's creation plan for marriage is one man and one woman. When a man takes a wife, his primary relationship and commitment comes to his wife. He leaves what had been primary relationship, parents, and clings to his wife. Now, this is a freebie. If anybody's mama's got a say in your marriage, you're going to have trouble. I offer to you that absolutely free. That, don't, that doesn't cost you a thing this morning. But if your mama or your daddy has a vote in your marriage, there's a problem. That primary relationship becomes oneness, and it becomes one flesh. The idea that we are together and we are for each other. And let me just tell you, some of you are finding out the first year is not all peaches and roses. It's hard. Them not liking Hamburger Helper may be the least of your problems. And some of us, some of you have been married for a while, you probably were shocked at how hard it was the first year. But the attitude really needs to be, love covers a multitude of sin. Guess what? Guess who in your marriage relationship's a sinner? Isn't it really easy to look at your spouse and say, boy, they've really got a problem. Every fight you're ever going to have as a married couple basically boils down to this. If they just do it the way I'm saying, everything would be all right. Yet Jesus tells us to fight for what is good for both, for the one, not for me, but for us, the one. And then Jesus points out the fact that what God has put together, don't let man separate. He talks about its permanence. Now, I need you to get this, and I need you to hear this because it really struck me hard over the last couple of weeks. This is the very fabric of the creation. This is even bigger than just a Christian thing. This is what it means to be a human thing. If you were born in Greenville, 
California or the backside of Vietnam. This is God's good intention. One man, one wife, together, one flesh for a lifetime. That has to be recaptured in our church. That has to be recaptured in our culture. I want you to see a fourth thing. Disciples understand marriage is about Jesus' faithfulness. After the conversation takes place, they enter into a house, and the disciples bring this back up. We don't know what they said. And then Jesus says very clearly, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You know what the answer to the questions the Pharisees asked? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus says, no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because the totality of Scripture points to something else that's going on in marriage. Paul in Ephesians 5, in a great discourse about marriage and family life, says this in Ephesians 5, 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The it is marriage. And in some profound way, when a man and woman come together under God through Christ, they are pointing to a bigger reality. Now, let me be clear to say that God gives us marriage to be enjoyed. It is to be enjoyed. I mean, you, you should enjoy husbands, your wife. If you think your wife is a ball and chain, then we can meet out back after the service if we need to, okay? We'll gather some brothers that will help you understand this. Wives, you should be enjoying your husband. Because what it's pointing to is the reality of Jesus and His church. That it is an actual witness of the gospel. That's why it matters that you're married. And that you practice reconciliation and you practice grace and you practice mercy with one another. I have some real practical reasons to think about these realities. I've got four kids at my house. And when I'm married to their mama, I want them to know by the way we do it, I want them to know, I think they like each other. I think they like each other a lot. I want my daughters one day to be able to judge their husbands against what I did. And I'm not afraid to say that. Now, I'm praying for their future husbands because, Lord, I would hate for them to have to say, you know what, you don't treat me as good as my daddy Treated my mama. But that's at least what I want to be putting in their heads, that that's what a husband's supposed to do. Your daddy grabs your mama and gives her a big kiss in the kitchen so you'll know that's good. But see, I also want to have a good marriage so my sons will know how to be a husband. I was real confused about it. 
I felt very confused when I first got married. And again, I thank God for godly mentors that helped me through that. But I want my boys to know, boys, this is the way you treat a woman. This might sound old-fashioned, but you know what? Boys, it's okay for you to open the door for your mama. It's good for me to open the door for my wife. I want you to know how you're supposed to love her. But there's even a bigger reason than that, just the practical training. I want to be able to, the kind of marriage that Kathy and I have, when I talk about the gospel and when I want to talk about Jesus, I want to be able to say to my children, You see the way I love your mama? That's how much Jesus loves you, except multiplied by a million. He is just constantly pouring his affection on you. He is constantly looking for ways to bless you and help you and encourage you. That's what's at stake when you walk out the doors today. Husbands and wives, you are communicating to this world how Jesus loves his bride. That's why your marriage matters. And I'm going to tell you, I am overwhelmed by how imperfect I am in that. And men, I'm just going to say this very clearly to you. It puts us in a, a tough position because either we're going to get bitter and mad and angry because we can't measure up, man, nothing exposes your flaws like your marriage does. Because you've got somebody who's always reminding you of what your blind spots are. And it's real easy to think that's a bad thing, but yet that's God's good gift to you. But you can either get bitter about it, or you just stay humble and teachable, and God, help me love Kathy the way you've called me to love her. I am so weak in this area. I constantly need your help, Father. Your weakness is a constant opportunity to call out to God for help that is very quick to come lend His aid. But ultimately, what we need to understand is that marriage is permanent and divorce shouldn't be a reality because God doesn't divorce His people. Jesus doesn't leave His bride. Man, we are a bad bride. We are weak and we are sinful. You want to see how committed God is to His bride? You go in the Old Testament and read Hosea. And you see a beautiful picture of a, of a husband God who will never leave nor forsake his bride ever. And that is ultimately what marriage is pointing to, that Jesus is faithful. And as disciples, we want to be faithful. Not perfect, but trusting in our Savior who is living that kind of life for us. I want to turn our attention really to some, what do we do with all this? A lot of what I've been telling you today is very much of the ideal situation. 
But I want to point out this, that disciples fight for soft hearts for God's glory. What Jesus accused the Pharisees of was hard-heartedness. And in preparing for this sermon, I had the opportunity to think about who are some couples in our church that are revealing this to us, that they are fighting for soft hearts for God's glory, for the benefit of their spouse. Right now, you're going to hear from two couples who are going to show us a little bit of what it means to fight for having soft hearts toward each other.
Oftentimes, Liz will uh, think of me first and little then. Uh, it's, it's fantastic to know that she's constantly thinking of me and she's, she's definitely trying hard to show me that she loves, that she loves me. Seeing him in our small groups and, and his return and knowing that he is surrounded by a group of men that he can be held accountable to and that he has a group he can open up to and be vulnerable in front of and um, to learn from them and to be sharpened by them and just that he is willing to put himself <coughs> in that position for our marriage. It's important that uh, we keep, keep in mind that we're prone to having a hard heart. We're prone to ignoring each other. We're, I'm prone to being very prideful and whatever I can do, whether it's a simple At the end of his discussion of marriage, Paul says in Ephesians 5.33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Josh said that the reality is that we can be bent toward being hard-hearted to the gift that God's given us. It's real easy after a long day husband to say something unloving to your wife or to treat her in an unloving way. And then it's then easy for your wife to then act in a disrespectful way towards you. And there begins the hamster wheel. Something as small as a quick argument turns into a trajectory that just starts happening over and over. Husband's unloving, wife's disrespectful. You know what the solution is to that? Someone has to decide to get off. It either has to be a wife who says, you know what, he hasn't been acting very loving toward me, but I'm going to respect him anyway. It might be a husband who has to say, you know what, my wife's not been acting very respectful toward me, but I'm going to love her anyway. Why? Because that's what Jesus does for you. Love covers a multitude of sin. We have to practice that reality. Some of us today are in a place where, quite frankly, our hearts are growing hard toward our spouse. And we've got some choices to make. We can leave today ignoring that. Perhaps we could go to our small group and say, you know what, I am really struggling with being soft-hearted toward my spouse. I am really having a hard time. I don't know about you, but wouldn't a cup of coffee with Tim Smurden be worth your time?
Josh Miller's got seven or eight years down the road. He's learned some things. If you've only been married a year or two, wouldn't a cup of coffee with Josh Miller be worth your time? If Kathy and I did anything right when we first got married, we just hung out with couples that were older than us. And I cannot tell you the value of conversations that I was able to have with older couples, that we were able to have with older couples that really helped us as a young married couple. But see, the, the temptation of the enemy this morning is that if you are struggling in your marriage, is to walk out of here and smile at everybody and pretend like everything's okay. Enemy wins if you get in the car, and that's what you determine to do. If anything, 45 years of living and 20 years of marriage have taught me, it's that you should never be in a position where you would say, I would never. Tomorrow, some of us could get a phone call that brings challenge and stress to your marriage in ways you're completely unprepared to handle. I've never been to a wedding where the couple kind of put an asterisk somewhere in their program or had a few moments in the ceremony to say, well, you know, we are looking for an out if this doesn't work out. But here's the reality of the truth. Some little bird can come flying over and drop something right into your lap and you're not prepared. The person you thought you got married to is going off in a direction that you never would have dreamed would have happened. It's going to be important for us as a church to further cultivate a Titus II mentality when it comes to marriage. Older couples, some of us might be tempted to think that young people don't want to hear what we have to say. But I'm going to tell you this. Over in my small group, where Richard and Kathleen Kugler come, and they've been married for 30 plus years, when Richard Kugler speaks to our gender group, gold has just been presented. And you're an idiot if you don't pick it up and put it in your pocket. That needs to be happening all over our church. And so older people, if you've been not being a part of a small group because you don't think you have anything to offer, I promise you, you've got an arsenal of wisdom to offer. And I need some older couples to be pursuing some younger couples. Inviting them over to your house and grill some hamburgers and just ask them, how are things going in your marriage? Where did we get the idea in the church that that's none of our business? Let me ask you a question. What would it mean to our church if one of our elders had their marriage fail? What would that mean for our church? Are you constantly praying for the marriages of our elders and our leadership? If you are a husband, the way you apply this message today is don't divorce your wife. Love her. 
Rodney, I've already been divorced and I'm already remarried. Then love your wife. God redeems and reconciles all things to Himself. Wife, if you're here today, respect your husband. But I've been divorced and remarried. Then respect your husband. God redeems and reconciles all things. Today we come to the Lord's table. How fitting we would do that today. That on this day, we have an opportunity to participate in the very picture of what our Lord Jesus did for us. His love covering a multitude of sin. That we might be forgiven and that we might be set free. The table this morning is for those who are followers of Jesus, for those that have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. Today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would ask you to pass over today. Maybe today some of us are struggling because we are struggling with some issues in our marriage, and there are some hard places, and there's some unresolved issues between us. I'm angry at my wife. Wife is angry at husband. Maybe today we need to spend a few moments seeking forgiveness. And if I'm not willing to do that, then again, we just need to pass on the Lord's table today. The Lord's table is a place where first we spend some time just seeing how things are. That we're ready to receive this picture today. The way we practice here at TCC, we invite any believer to come and after a time of examination and just seeking forgiveness and confessing known sin to the Lord. And then when you're ready, as an appropriate time to come to one of the tables, either here in the front or in the back, and receive the cup and receive the bread, to do that with your family, to do that with your spouse, to do that with small groups. Today, if you're here and you need to seek out prayer, I would encourage you to seek out your small group leader or one of our elders. They're always glad to pray with you. I want to ask everyone to stand to their feet, and we're going to pray as the band's going to come up and play and as we prepare to receive the Lord's table. Father, today the Word is weighty and the Word is strong, and it points to the fact that we all need You. We all need Your grace. And we thank You that You gave us Your Son that we might have life and forgiveness. So Father, I'm going to pray today that You're going to Bring healing to marriages today that are struggling. That husbands and wives that are going to stop hiding and stop pretending and through the grace of Jesus and His strength alone, they're going to just speak the truth to each other and seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation. That faithful husbands and wives are going to keep walking faithfully, trusting in You in all things. Father, Thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for sacrificing yourself that we might have life and have it more abundantly. For the brokenhearted today, Father, I pray your healing. Oh, Father, I pray your good gift of mercy and sufficient grace for those that are brokenhearted today. 
And I pray your sufficient grace to strengthen where we need strength today. I pray this in Jesus' name.